It is now my pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator. As the lead reporter for CBC News at 6 p.m., Anita Bath takes viewers through some of the most important stories happening around Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley every night. And Anita is award-winning journalist for her coverage of breaking news. So please join me in welcoming Anita Bath. Susan. I'm honored to be here this evening with Mayor Nenshi to hear his talk on creating the cities and country we deserve. Now, after his talk, I will be joining Mayor Nenshi right here in these two chairs, and we will be answering any questions that you may have, not all of them, but we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, so please don't forget to input them into the online platform. Now, of course, the moment you've all been waiting for, the reason you're all here today. I'd like to introduce to you to our special guest. Nahid Nenshi was sworn in as Calgary's 36th mayor on October 25, 2010. He was re-elected in 2013, and he was re-elected again last year in 2017. Prior to being elected, Mayor Nenshi was with McKinsey & Company, later forming his own business to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations grow. Now, he designed policy for the government of Alberta, and worked with the United Nations to try to figure out how businesses could help some of the poorest people on this planet. He then entered academia, where he was Canada's first tenured professor in the field of nonprofit management at Mount Royal University. For his work, Mayor Nenshi was named a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, was awarded the President's Award from the Canadian Institute of Planners, and received the Humanitarian Award from the Canadian Psychological Association for his contributions to community mental health. Now, in 2013, you may remember the devastating flooding that happened in Calgary. Well, after that, McLean's Magazine called him the second most influential person in Canada right after the Prime Minister. He was also awarded the 2014 World Mayor Prize by the UK-based City Mayors Foundation as the best mayor in the world. So, pretty big deal you guys got here today. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage Mayor Nenshi. So thank you to all of you so much for being here with us tonight so that we can have, I hope, a great conversation. Dada Tansi Buju Ambawastich. Bonjour to mes parents. Oki Nitsugwa. Nitsuwano Kabestotispiste. I love that simple greeting common to so many indigenous languages. Greetings to all my relations. And even when you can't pronounce the six indigenous languages you try to speak in front of a group in Vancouver, <laughs> the sentiment is still the same. It talks about how we are all gathered together in community, how we rely on one another together. And it is my great honor to be here with all of you here on this traditional and ancestral land of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh people. I, too, come to you and bring you greetings from an ancient land, from a land where people have been gathering for thousands of years. The Blackfoot call the place I come from Mokinstis, the elbow, the place where two rivers meet. It may surprise you to know that Calgary is actually a semi-arid region. It doesn't rain or snow very much. I really didn't know what to do with this. And so people are drawn to that land by the water because those two rivers meet there. And for thousands of years, people have been coming to that land. They've been coming there to hunt and to fish and to trade, to live and to love and to have great victories and to taste bitter disappointment. Feels like my council meetings this week. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> 
but above all, to engage in that very human act of building community. And so, you know, when politicians and professors and others start public gatherings now with that land acknowledgement, I was at a wedding where they started with the land acknowledgement a couple weeks ago, which I thought was very cool. Sometimes it feels a little dusty. Sometimes it feels rote, like a quick acknowledgement of the past. But it really isn't. And the reason that we do that is because for us to think about who we are and where we're going, it's important for us to think about where we've been and how we have created the context of the communities in which we live. So I bring you greetings from the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Gaina, and the Pikani people, from the Dakota people of the Stony Nations, the Chiniki, the Bearspaw, and the Wesley people, from the Beaver people of the Sutina Nation, from the Métis people with their long history on the land that I share. And as we think about that, we think about what we are doing together as a community. So this is supposed to be the mastermind's masterclass. It's funny for me, because I don't particularly have a mastermind. And I'm a business professor, and ain't nobody wants to go to my masterclass. Because <laughs> I'm pretty simple. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about today, I managed to give myself the most generic title imaginable building the city and the countries that we deserve, to give myself a lot of room. <laughs> they, they insisted I needed a title. Uh, by the way, I have a giant picture of myself over my shoulder. I just, <laughs> I just noticed that. My orthodontist thanks you all. Um, there were a lot of things that I could talk about. You know, we could talk about resiliency and building great cities. We could talk about public transit. We could talk about the scourge of addiction and mental health in our communities. These are all things I would love to talk about. And if you have questions about them, get out the Slido. It's very high tech for me, but I'm sure it works beautifully. And happy to chat about any of those things. But I actually want to do something a bit simpler. I just want to tell you about my week. Now, that may sound like lazy speech writing. OK, it's lazy speech writing. But I actually want to tell you four stories about my last seven days. And hopefully, in thinking about those four stories, we can think a little bit about the kinds of communities we're creating and what our responsibility is in community to create those things. So I haven't been to Vancouver in a couple of years. In fact, Virginia, my friend and former student, has been trying to get me out for this lecture for, you say it's two years, I think it's more like four. But I haven't been here for two years. But weirdly, I've actually been in Vancouver twice this week. And so exactly seven days ago, I was here uh, just down the street uh, doing a number of things here in Vancouver around the tech economy. I was here to create linkages between Calgary tech companies and Vancouver tech companies between large Calgary companies that could be customers of Vancouver tech companies, and then I was also here, well, to steal all your children. <laughs> we got jobs um, in the tech industry. We've got innovative, creative, thoughtful people here, and did I mention that my lovely 2,100-square-foot house in a good neighborhood 20 minutes from downtown <laughs> would sell for $450,000 today? <laughs> just, just, I'll let that sink in. Okay, clear. I know there's a bylaw in Vancouver that you can't talk for more than three minutes without discussing the price of real estate, so <laughs> tick. So we've done that. But what was interesting about that, and the reason that I want to tell you about that trip, is because first thing in the morning, seven days ago, a week, a week ago today, I found myself speaking with um, the CBC in the morning, with Stephen Quinn. And we had, shall we say, a very feisty conversation. If anybody heard it, you know what I'm talking about. I really had fun. It was really fun. And as I was walking out the door, a senior executive with CBC, I won't tell you who, Anita, was walking in with her earbuds in. She saw me, took her earbuds off, and said, wow. <laughs> and I said, what? And she goes, nobody gives him as good as he gets. You did great. So I was very proud of myself. 
But I started thinking a little bit about what that actually means. So we were talking, of course, about a particular large infrastructure project with which you might be familiar. <laughs> there are different points of view on this infrastructure project. I certainly have a point of view. Mine happens to be correct, but that's not my point. <laughs> I suddenly found that even on the civilized CBC at 7 o'clock in the morning, as we were talking about our positions on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, did I mention mine happens to be correct? <laughs> we were really going to positional places. And, you know, Stephen called me out for perhaps calling your premier the worst politician Canada has seen in decades. And he said that wasn't very nice. And I said, you're right, it's true, but it's not very nice. And I realized that we were talking at loggerheads. And I realized that I spent so much of my time talking about community. I spent so much of my time deriding the anger and bitterness and division that is growing and growing and growing in the world we live in. But even I, sounding like I'm an enlightened person, even I fall into that same conversation. And I realized that we got a problem. And on this particular issue, and I'll delve into it just for a moment, we seem to have turned into a place where you either believe in the environment or you believe in the economy, and you'll never, ever meet. And you either are on one side of the mountains thinking everyone else on the other side of the mountains are a bunch of troglodyte cavemen who drive F-350s, that's a truck, by the way, <laughs> in their cowboy hats, burning and pillaging and not caring about the consequences of their actions. Or if you're on the other side, you think that there's a bunch of latte drinking, sushi eating, people who never noticed when cannabis became legal, because really, it didn't matter. <laughs> who apparently live off of unicorns and rainbows and cannabis, <laughs> and have no sense of energy security while filling up their Priuses, which still take gas. Both of these things are true. No, they're not. People on my side of the Rocky Mountains care passionately about the future, about the world that we're living in, about climate change, about how we manage through that, how we think about the transition, how we think about electricity and energy, and how we think about how access to energy is actually, access to safe, clean energy is actually one of the most potent anti-poverty tools there is. And people on this side, hopefully understand that the gas they fill their tanks with comes through a 60-year-old pipeline called Trans Mountain. And if it doesn't, it comes up the Salish Sea through a pot of whales from Washington State in tankers. And there are lots of conversations we can have. And if you want to talk about it in the question period, I can talk about why I think the cost benefits uh, are benefits for all of Canada in this work. I can do that, and I'm happy to do that. But I think that the key is, when we think about energy security, when we think about what we're trying to create together as a nation, there's a lot much more that unites us than that which divides us. And what's important for us is to remember that we're starting from mutual interest. We're starting from an interest in prosperity. We're starting from an interest in the environment. We're starting from an interest in how we combat climate change in a way that's realistic and how we work on that together. And I didn't do that a week ago today. I think I won the debate. A lot of people tweeted and called and emailed and said, you showed him, and I was happy to do that. But I think there was more to it than that. I think that the conversation about mutual trust, about respect, about what we want together as human beings and as Canadians is a deeper conversation that we need to be able to have. And yes, I'm sorry about the joke I made about the new mayor of Vancouver who I haven't met yet. It was, however, a very funny joke. <laughs> a lot of this came to me. So my second story. On Tuesday night, after a very intense debate at council, getting to it, 
Tuesday night, I found myself in the Bethsaidic Synagogue in southwest Calgary, a place where I have been many, many times. And I was there, but sadly, I said to the rabbi, you know, every time I come here, it seems to be for a funeral. And he said, come more often. (laughs) And I was there for a very sad occasion because we were commemorating the horrific, horrific slaughter of peaceful people of faith at prayer at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And I was looking up at that stage, and it was sponsored by the Calgary Jewish Federation, by all of the various Jewish synagogues, and by something called the Calgary Interfaith Council. And the stage, which I was not sitting on because it was full, was full of people representing every possible faith group, except the Hindus. They couldn't make it. (laughs) But every possible faith group, it was a very long service because every single person talked. And they talked about our common humanity. They talked about ending hatred. They talked about how we come together and how we think about this. And just before I spoke, the director of music at the synagogue came up and recited, sang actually in Hebrew, Psalm 23. You all know it. It's a bit cliche almost. But she sang it in Hebrew, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, geez, if a good Muslim boy actually knows this psalm, everybody knows it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or in a modern translation, I kind of prefer, the Lord is my shepherd, and I don't need anything else. And later in that psalm, we talk about how my cup runneth over. My bowl is overflowing. And that little phrase that we've heard so many times, that day just hit me. And I threw out my speech. I do that. And I went up and I talked about my cup runneth over. And I said, when I heard the news last Saturday morning about these people at a naming ceremony for a baby on their Sabbath, in a synagogue, in, by the way, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Did you know that? So Mr. Rogers was born, raised, and did all his life in that neighborhood, in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh. When I think about a 97-year-old Holocaust victim, murdered because of her faith in the United States in 2018, I realized I was very, very sad But there was something else, and I was trying to identify what that something else was. Was it fear? Was it frustration? Was it anger? Was it white-hot rage? And I realized that it was a little bit of all of those things. Because we are in a world where it is increasingly fashionable to divide where people in my profession, for short-term political gain, stoke the fires of anger and intolerance and division and hatred. And those fires burn hotter and hotter and hotter. And we cannot afford to be smug here in Canada by saying that's happening somewhere else. So what do we do? How do we handle that? How do we manage that? And I was thinking about those words. My cup runneth over. We have so much. We have so much. How do we use what we have? in order to stand up for those that do not. How do we do that together? How do we manage in a way where we stand up for the very best of humanity every single day? And I said that night, that somehow it's become fashionable to deride those of us 
who believe in kindness and compassion and mercy and love is somehow weak. The next line will not make any sense. I just realized I'm in Vancouver, but it's too good not to use. <laughs> they call us snowflakes. So on the one day of the year that Vancouver totally shuts down, the white stuff comes from the sky. That, those are called snowflakes. Here's the thing. I manage the snow removal budget for the city of Calgary. And I know very well, October 2nd this year, that enough snowflakes put together are the most powerful force in the world. So if they want to call us snowflakes, bring on the blizzard. Bring it on. Because they need to understand the small-minded and the intolerance that kindness and compassion and mercy and love are not weakness. They are strength. They are strength beyond the imagining of the small-minded and the intolerant. So how do we use that strength? How do we use that strength together as human beings, building community together? And I think that that is actually the answer. I wish I knew what all the answers were. Make my life way easier. Well, I usually do know what all the answers are, but I got the city council. And... <laughs> but I have one answer. It's a very simple answer. It's not a mastermind, masterclass answer. It's a simple answer. But that answer is, in fact, community. Community is the cure. How do we think of ourselves as something greater than what we are together? How do we think of ourselves as being the same regardless of how we vote or what tribe we belong to? I wear purple every single day. And today, as every week, I had a group of students in my office, um, elementary school students. They come in every week. I get a half hour with them, different students every week, because it would be really boring if it was the same students every week. <laughs> and every single time, someone says, can you explain why you wear purple every single day? And I explain it, and the kids all go, oh. And the adults, eight years later, go, oh. I'll keep explaining it. Let's try it together. Purple is not a primary color. Purple is a secondary color. It is a combination of red and blue. Now do you see why I wear purple every day? Because in fact, we're not about red and blue and orange. We are about humanity. We're about solving problems together. We're about looking after one another in community. Can you be fiscally pragmatic about it? Yes. Can you do so in a way that cares for other people? I think so. And I think that's what we need to think about how we work on every single day. So I'm wearing a poppy today. And uh, I proudly wear the poppy. But when I'm not wearing a poppy, I often wear a lapel pin with a big number three on it. And for the, num for the year 2017, I spent a lot of time a lot of writing, a lot of speaking all over this great country for our sesquicentennial, largely because I like saying the word sesquicentennial. It's even more fun in French. Sesquicentenaire. <laughs> Sounds both delicious and dangerous all at the same time. <laughs> but talking about the number three. And if you take anything away from today, I want you to take away that number three. It stands for three things for Canada. It's a national movement where we encourage every single citizen every year to do three acts of community, to do three acts of service, asking every single citizen to do what they can. It doesn't matter if it's big, it doesn't matter if it's small, it doesn't matter if it's raking your neighbor's leaves or starting a new nonprofit organization. What matters is that it's service. What matters is that it makes a difference for other people, and tens of thousands of Canadians have taken this on. There are so many great stories about people who just had a barbecue, but they had it in their front lawn instead of their backyard. And they invited all the neighbors they didn't already know. In fact, on the anniversary of the Calgary flooding in 2013, every year we have something that is rather cheesily called Neighbor Day, because I love block parties. So we have a citywide block party. And the only reel is that 
you got to meet your neighbors. Sometimes they're really ornate and really complicated, and sometimes they're really simple. In one neighborhood in north central Calgary, all they did was have some Tim Hortons coffee and donuts in the morning, and they had a whiteboard. And on the whiteboard, it was divided in two, and it said, I need, I have. And the idea was you would go up and say, I need this, and someone would say, well, I have that, and you'd start to match people and uh, figure that out. And someone had written in kind of shaky handwriting, I need someone to fix my lawnmower. And so I said, this is interesting. I want to meet this person. So I met her. And it was an older woman. And I said, tell me about your lawnmower. And she said, well, I just lost my husband. And he always mowed the lawn. So I got to figure out how to mow the lawn. I can do it, but my lawnmower is broken and I don't know how to fix it. And of course, someone had written on the other side where she had written, I need someone who can fix the lawnmower. Someone had written on the other side, I can mow your lawn. In those little tiny acts, millions and millions of acts of humanity every single day are those basic building blocks of community. That it's not just about politicians with uh, apparently great teeth and hair <laughs> and lapel microphones making change in the world. It's about every single one of us. Everyday people. Everyday people with our everyday hands, our everyday hearts, and especially our everyday voices. Making extraordinary change for people everywhere, every single day. So whether it's a community garden or better traffic control in your neighborhood, these sorts of things are the things that make a difference every single day. My third story, which I actually scratched out and then went, no, I think they want to hear about this. So if you follow the news at all, you'll know that I've had a very busy week. A very crazy and busy week, and before I go any further, I want to acknowledge a great Canadian and an extraordinary volunteer who does so much uh, for this country every single day, who's joined us today. Tricia Smith, the President of the Canadian Olympic Committee, is here. <laughs> Yesterday, Tricia spent her day in Calgary sitting in the front row of my city council meeting with a very worried look on her face for about seven hours. <laughs> Uh, so, we've been talking a lot about the Olympics, and this is another example uh, in my city of weird stuff. Yesterday, my city council narrowly voted uh, to continue with our pursuit of the 2026 Olympics and to have a plebiscite on November the 13th. I was very happy they did so, but I didn't like the path that it took to get us there. I didn't like the path because there was a lot of weird sausage-making, strange negotiations. There was media leaks and counter leaks and things happening in public and things happening in private and a seven-hour phone call on Monday night where we were hashing out different aspects of the deal. But in the end, I had to put that in a drawer. And I had to say, let's answer a couple of basic questions. Is this good for the city? Is it good for the country? Does this deal make sense? And do the people have a right to pass judgment on it? And I realized that all our conversation about the Olympics had not been about what it needed to be about. Yeah, we have to talk about facilities and sporting infrastructure and the fact that Calgary has this tremendous legacy. I'll give you one interesting bit of trivia. In 1988, when Calgary hosted the Winter Games, it was called, at the time, the best-run uh, best Olympics in history. I happen to think that with one exception, Vancouver 2010, of course, it maintains its status as the best-run games in history. But Canada, at those games, uh, had an accomplishment that no, well, only one other country in history had ever had before. And that was, we hosted an Olympics at which the host country did not win a gold medal. Want to know what the other country that did that is? Trisha knows. Also Canada. <laughs> 1976 in Montreal. So y'all fixed that in 2010 in Vancouver. Thank you. But in Pyeongchang, there were 29 medals won by Canadians. It was a record haul. At the Paralympic Games, many amazing things happened. The most amazing of all being Brian McKeever 
becomes the most decorated Paralympian cross-country skier ever with 17 medals, 13 of them gold. The most decorated Canadian Paralympian ever. Brian McKeever is from Canmore, just outside of Calgary. Of the 29 medals that were won in Pyeongchang, 23 of them were won by athletes who trained in or had connections to Calgary. That's because of the legacy of 1988. I'm not a UBC alumnus. I wish I was. I'm an alumnus of the University of Calgary. And I went to school at the University of Calgary with athletes from all over the world who had come to Calgary to train, to live, to study. Many of them have stayed and built the community. Many of them have gone back and spread the news of Canada around the world. But that's real legacy. But it's not just for elite athletes. Right? You think about kids in those sports. You think about one of my favorite people, Gil Junio. Gil is a speed skater. And he is Filipino. Not a lot of Filipino speed skaters. <laughs> but because he grew up in Calgary, he had access to the Olympic Oval. He had access to that sport. He saw role models and coaches and mentors in those elite athletes. And now he's an Olympian. But again, it's not just about them. It's about every kid who wants to do those sports. It's about every kid who wants to do every sport. You look at me and you can tell that I am very sporty. <laughs> I believe in healthy communities. And I believe in access and opportunity for every single person in the community. And I realize that in our Olympic discussion, that conversation was being lost. That either we were talking about, you know, how corrupt international organizations are, or what a waste of tax dollars this is, or why can't we spend money on that? And I thought to myself, have we lost the ability to dream? In our small and petty and closed world, have we lost the ability to think big as communities and as Canadians? The theme of Calgary 2026 is three simple words, with open arms. And in a world that is increasingly defined by being closed, closed hearts, closed minds, closed borders, Canada is a place that works because we are defiantly open, that we are open to the world, we are open to the best of the world, we're open to investment, we're open to talent, we're open to people. That's what makes this country work. And I love that theme of the Olympics, with, or of the 2026 games, with open arms. Because that really says so clearly who we are. So speaking of dreaming, my fourth and final story. This morning, did I mention lazy speech writing? This morning, I had an extraordinary opportunity. This morning, I opened Calgary's new central library. And I got to the stage, there were so many people lined up outside. I made people squish in and move around and go upstairs so that everybody could get in because this place was for them. And I pointed out at that time that the organizers had asked me, um, saying, you know, people actually want to use the library, Mayor. They need to check their Facebook, they need to sign out books. Um, so for the love of God, keep it short. So I refused. Because this today is why I do what I do. And so being a good academic, I have to cite my sources, so I'm going to do something very weird and I'm going to quote myself. <laughs> because this morning, I had, I had, I had decided the, the, the new central library is right across from City Hall. I look at it every day. And everyone has said, well, do you want to take a tour? Do you want to move in? And I decided not to. Because I wanted to see it for the first time when everyone else saw it for the first time. Because I wanted to be real, and I wanted to be raw, and I wanted to be in that place. And I drove into my office this morning, as I do every single day, and when I had left late last night, there were still hoardings and barriers up. They had removed them overnight, so it was the first time I saw the whole thing, even though I drive by it every single day. So I nearly had an accident. <laughs> but I made it. And I went in, and I looked at it, and I wanted to be real, and I wanted to be raw, and this was a big mistake. 
because I got really choked up. And it was very hard for me to speak. So I threw out my speech, as I do, and I talked about why this was an important place and why it mattered. And I said thank you like you're supposed to to the donors and to the volunteers and to the funders and the project managers. And I said thank you to the women and men who worked on that site every single day, whose strong arms and strong backs and great skills built this modern cathedral. And I said thank you to those librarians at the Forest Lawn Public Library all those years ago who on Saturday afternoons would be so kind to this first-generation nerdy kid who would let him sign out even more books than were normally allowed to be signed out because they knew he'd read them all, who knew that that kid didn't have any money, came from a family that was sometimes struggling, but what he had was amazing opportunity. The opportunity to go to great public schools, the opportunity to explore his city on public transit, the opportunity to live in a city that had a stake in his success, and the opportunity to spend Saturday afternoons at the public library. So I said to the people who say, well, that's really expensive. Why is it so nice? Doesn't have to be that nice. Why are you building a library anyway when I have the information of the world in my hand? And you know, normally I say to those people, 6.8 million people used the Calgary Public Library last year. That is more people than did, went to all sports, arts, and cultural events in the city combined. That libraries matter every single day. I'm not just saying that because UBC Libraries is our sponsor. <laughs> but instead what I said, as I said, I want you to look around yourselves at this building, and I want you to understand what this building is. This building is a statement of what we believe. We believe in community. We believe in opportunity. We believe that it doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from or how you worship or whom you love. We believe that you belong here. We believe that you deserve beauty. We believe that you deserve dignity. We believe that you deserve a place to make your dreams real. Because this is not a building. This is our manifesto. And that's how we build the communities we deserve. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Mary Enchi. You can sit down and we'll start our discussion. How awesome was that and inspiring? Well, thank you. Um, and that being said, I want to ask, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with um, building that sense of community and having that compassion, you know, 24 hours a day all the time. Were you always like that? Or did something happen in your life that made you Things you know, like that. I talked about the librarians at the Forest Lawn Public Library, but that really was a very important part of my entire upbringing. I'm very lucky that I lived in a family that believed in the concept of service. You know, in every South Asian language, the word is the same, seba, right, service. And we always knew that whatever you, however little you have, there's someone else who has less that upholding the dignity of every human being is an important part of being a human being. And so I was very lucky to always have that in my upbringing. But it wasn't just my parents and my family, it was the whole community. You know, when I was first elected in 2010, I suddenly found myself super famous, right? People, like the day after the election, everybody wanted to talk to me. CNN, Time Magazine, Al Jazeera, right? And they didn't want to talk to me because of my outstanding hair and great teeth. Oh, good, it's gone. Um, 
or even you know the campaign that I ran, that all came later. They didn't even want to talk to me because of the color of my skin. They only wanted to talk to me about my faith. And people were kind of shocked by this. And, and I, I had a weird opportunity at that moment because I thought, well, given that nobody in Calgary particularly cared about whether I was Muslim, they just cared about what my plans for transit were, do I just ignore those conversations and say, ah, this is not relevant? Or do I use it as an opportunity to tell a really important story about the kind of community that we grew up in? You know, I remember somebody asked me during that first election, do you think Calgary is ready for a Muslim mayor? It was the only time my faith came up during that election. And I was a bit shocked by the question. And I really didn't know how to answer it. And then I thought about it and I said, you know, growing up in this city, being at that public library, I never for a moment thought that there was any profession that was closed to me because of my faith, except maybe rabbi. <laughs> Listen, when I was at the synagogue the other day, the rabbi actually said to me, I do need an assistant rabbi. <laughs> and I said, I don't think I'm qualified. But, you know, for every Canadian, for people here in Vancouver, that is such a meaningless statement, of course. There are no professions that are closed to you because of your faith. But it's actually a really unique thing to say in the world. Even in Canada, we don't have that for everyone. And so it's really, I think, critical to understand that that sense of service doesn't just come from within, but it comes from a community that supports that. So just briefly, I answered questions really long. I already told Anita, just cut me off. but. The reason that I'm three, giving him a bit of leeway for the first one. <laughs> that, well, I see you have lots of questions on I do. <laughs> but the reason that three things for Canada concept, the one thing I want you all to take away to your communities, to your schools, to your homes, is so powerful, is precisely because we don't tell people what to do. We just say answer two questions. What are you passionate about? How can you make a difference? Figure out what the overlap is. And people remarkably come to the table. As an academic, for those of you who are academics in the room, that's actually my research. It's about civic engagement. I'm a terrible professor, but it is theoretically about civic engagement and how those things happen. One thing we know is that it's very easy to get people involved in community. What do you guys think? What's the number one reason people don't volunteer? What would you say? Time, someone said money. None of those are true. The stats are very, very clear across years, across communities. The number one reason people don't volunteer, nobody asked me. And so as human beings, we gotta think about how do we ask people? How do we set the table for that kind of service? That's what Three Things for Canada is about. That's why I stand on stages and do this, and I think we all have to use our voices to do that. Well, and we'll, we'll do this next one really quickly. Lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is a very Vancouver question. Uh, but it, it's very relevant. How do you create community when an increasing share of property ownership is going offshore, disconnecting owners from most of that community? You know, your neighbors, perhaps their homes are empty or they don't want to be a part of the community. That is such a Vancouver question. Um, <laughs> and this is a critic, but it is a critical one, right? Because, you know, if I were speaking with the mayor of Vancouver, and I will, um, I didn't want to bug him while he was in his transition period because that's really mean. <laughs> He's very busy. He doesn't need uh, a random guy knocking on his door asking for tea. But I would say that, you know, when you talk about to people in Vancouver who are ultimately concerned about the cost of home ownership, the cost of having a life here, there is a deeper question there. And the deeper question is what does the rising cost of home ownership, whether it's foreign absentee ownership or just the rising cost of ownership, period, do to community? You know, we know when I, was, when I was a volunteer 15 years ago in Calgary helping write Calgary's 100-year vision, we talked to 18,000 people. And there was a remarkable unanimity in what people were saying when you said, what kind of a neighborhood do you want to live in? People said, I want to live in a neighborhood where I can walk to school, where my kids can walk to school, where I, maybe I can walk to the store. I want to live in a neighborhood where my kids grow up with people who are different to me so that they understand what the world is like. And we don't build those neighborhoods. It's so weird that that's what people want and that's not what the market is providing. But in a case where you have people physically not even there, it becomes so much harder. And I would suggest that 
conversations around the cost of home ownership need to also be conversations around mixed and just communities for everyone. And probably this has been studied to death and I don't want to be the outsider talking about it, but I think that starting at that point could help reveal different paths forward. Okay, and you mentioned talking to the city's mayor um, and possibly other politicians while you're here. Um, one of the questions is, what do you think Vancouver should do about the housing crisis so that we don't have those issues with? There really is a bylaw that you have to talk about real estate, <laughs> right? We have a big challenge. So I'll, I'll give you the exact opposite of the situation, right? Which is, for whatever reason in Calgary, and I don't claim to understand why, we have not had this sort of housing bubble. And when the economy really soured in Calgary about three years ago, we did not have a housing crash. People thought we might, we didn't. And so one of the challenges in governing a country like this is that when you're putting in things to slow down the really hot housing markets in Vancouver and in Toronto, things like mortgage stress tests to try and protect people, you end up doing significant damage to people's ability to buy a home, to get into home ownership in places like Calgary. That's hard. And I'm not criticizing the federal government for doing that. It's, they had to do it. Um, but we have to be thoughtful and flexible with our prescriptions. Um, I could get into a bunch of detail, maybe just I'll say very briefly, that you have to think about housing in three ways. There are three costs of housing. The cost of land, the cost of construction, the cost of financing. And some people would add the cost of regulation. So when you are a government, you don't have a lot of control over those things, except maybe the cost of regulation, removing red tape, making it easier to get permits, and so on. And so you have to really try and figure out how to manipulate these other levers, because the challenge that we have is the cost of land is the same, whether you're building very expensive high-end housing or whether you're building entry-level housing. The cost of financing is the same. And what's interesting is the cost of construction is also largely the same. The granite countertops are actually a pretty small percentage of the overall cost of the building. So, of course, if you're in the private market, you're going to build things for more expensive with higher margins. There's no market initiative. And I'm a business professor, and I believe in free markets. But in this particular case, there is no market incentive to be able to build entry-level market housing. And since you don't have that, means people can't buy, which means people rent longer, which means rents go up and up and up because wealthier people are renting because they can't afford to buy, which means people can't afford market rents are seeking social housing. Social housing is full, meaning that people who are experiencing homelessness don't have social housing to go into. So you basically are clogged up. And I'm not talking just about Vancouver. It's the same in Calgary. It's the same everywhere. You're clogged up throughout the supply in the market. And you've got to figure out innovative ways of releasing the pressure for first-time home buyers, for people who want to rent. In my case, you know, we, Burnaby and uh, Calgary were the only cities in the country where essentially secondary suites, basement suites were illegal. Uh, we fixed that finally uh, in Calgary just this year. Um, but you've got to have these release valves throughout, and ultimately, governments have to take very, very, very seriously the need to invest in affordable housing, permanent, safe, decent, affordable housing for everyone. You know, in our Olympic bid, the number one expense is not any venue or any public transit. The number one expense is the largest investment in affordable housing in our history. And those are the things we got to do. Okay. Switching gears a little bit because I know you're sick of real estate now. <laughs> How do everyday acts of community service help solve big, complex societal problems like the opioid crisis, climate change, housing? And homelessness. What was the other one? Housing. Hmm? Oh, housing. housing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you threw in and homelessness. I, I think I, I would challenge the premise of the question because these things don't solve those problems. We have to solve those problems on multiple levels. We have to solve them on the level of policy, on the level of programs, on the level of individuals and people. But it's going to sound trite. Every little bit helps. So you think about, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to pick any of those. Um, I'm very, very, very concerned, um, as you've heard me mention a couple of times, with addiction and mental health in our communities. I frankly think we just don't know what we're doing. And 
I think the interventions that we're using at a policy level are not working. And so it's important for us to really think hard about how we help people through in terms of prevention, in terms of treatment, in terms of harm reduction, all of those things, in terms of enforcement. But ultimately, what matters in the life of someone who is facing addiction is if somebody else cares about them. And whether that's a family member or someone who works with them in the sector, someone has to have a stake in their life and someone has to have a stake in their future. The brain research on this is very clear that the root cause of addiction is isolation. It's people feeling like they're alone. And so, well, one of the root causes, I shouldn't oversimplify it, is the masterminds after all. And so those little daily acts of kindness and heroism have a giant cumulative effect. Do they replace good policy or can they fix terrible policy? Maybe not. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do them. It's the same as the climate change argument. You know, people say Canada accounts for an infinitesimal amount of global greenhouse gas emissions. And if we cut our greenhouse gas emissions to zero, it would make no difference to the climate. It's true. Does that mean we shouldn't do it? Should everybody say that? You know, of course not. And so those small actions are really things that we do that help give politicians like me the courage to make the big policy changes, but also make the differences that they make. Okay, thank you. How do we move away from polarizing rhetoric and convince politicians to be honest? How do you get the Notleys and the Horgans to admit the other side has valid points? I don't know if you can, if you can be unbiased on, on this one. No, I can't. Um, <laughs> do you know they're actually really good friends, eh? They started out in politics together, mm -hmm. and they haven't spoken to one another in months. <laughs> it's actually a bit sad. Um, so I, I won't even attempt to be unbiased on this. Um, but I will suggest that it's really important for you to start with this area of mutual interest and mutual respect. The challenge is that in too many cases, we have drawn the battle lines already. So, you know, I'll give you a, a silly example on this front. And again, I'm not even going to attempt to be unbiased. So LNG Canada, the largest private sector investment in Canadian history, you know, it's a big um, British Columbia project, but the headquarters of all of the consortium partners of LNG Canada are in Calgary. So this is actually a tremendous, great success for Alberta and for British Columbia. In fact, I was in China uh, just a month or two ago, and uh, one of the women that I was meeting with from a big, big Chinese firm slid up to me at the end and said, by the way, I'm moving to Calgary. It's <laughs> like, oh, is that why you RSVP'd for this event? <laughs> she had just found out that morning that she was going to come and head up a portion of LNG Canada. And yet, when the news was announced, we could hardly, hardly scare up a smile in Calgary because people were like, oh, that's Premier Horgan's project. And when you flip the switch on that, you can, and you can, can imagine that people in Calgary were saying, how come that pipeline is totally fine, but the one that goes to the Burrard Inlet is not totally fine? And you know, even on the radio the other morning, Stephen said to me, well, it's totally different. And I said, yeah, it's totally different, because as we learned two weeks ago, when you have a break in a natural gas pipeline, it has a nasty tendency to explode. He didn't like that. <laughs> that was when it got feisty. Um, but getting a resource to market in Asia and paying market price for it, you know, we can't even have that conversation anymore because something is dirty bitumen oil from the tar sands and something is clean burning natural gas. And we've set up these battle lines instead of actually talking about what is really in our mutual interest. Um, can we get there? I don't know. You know, I fear for the elections that we're going to have going forward. We have a provincial election in Alberta uh, probably in the spring. We have a federal election in the fall. And if people are interested, ask on Slido, and I can really get into the climate of campaigns and how 
gross that is right now. My uh, election in 2017 was the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I volunteered on politics all my life. I'd never seen anything like that. And there are folks who benefit from sowing this kind of discord and division. And how do we fix it? I don't know. I think the number one thing we do is we vote. You know, in my last election in 2017, third term incumbent mayor, we had record high voter turnout. That never happens when you have a third term incumbent. But the reason it happened is because enough people said, hey, don't steal my democracy. Don't steal away what I want for the community. So the number one thing we gotta do is we gotta vote. We gotta call out politicians who act in ways that are inflammatory, who act in ways that are needlessly divisive, and that's on all sides of the spectrum. Don't think I'm talking about Trump here. The reason I was so mean to Premier Horgan a year ago is because of something he said that I thought was unbelievably inflammatory and was actually causing a constitutional crisis in the country. And maybe I was wrong, and I shouldn't have been mean, maybe. But I really believe you gotta call that stuff out. And we as citizens need to say to politicians, no. If you do that, I don't care if I agree with you. If you do that, you've lost my support. And ultimately, that's the oxygen that politicians need, and we all gotta do it. Are you worried about where the world is going? Terrified. Right? Terrified. Because it's not just... You know, it's so easy for us as Canadians to be smug and to say, not here. And it doesn't happen here. And we are enlightened, and we start all of our meetings with a land acknowledgement, and we welcome people from around the world with great opportunity here. But that kind of, but that is very fragile, and it's very thin. And when irresponsible people with microphones scratch at it, it's very, very easy to break that social fabric. So we have to be constantly mending it, and we have to be constantly vigilant, and that is what keeps me up at night, because I can see how very, very easily we can follow many countries in Western Europe, we can follow the United States, we can follow others, and that is right there. And it's gonna take all of us to not go there. On the mind of a lot of people right now, all the time, um, and that brings us to a question, something that's happening here in BC right now, we're having a referendum on proportional yes. representation. Do you think changing our electoral system can help us elect those who will want to build community or who won't be so? Um, I'm gonna say something a little bit controversial, maybe. It's not the electoral system, it's the people. It's the people that run, it's the people that volunteer, it's the people who get involved in politics, it's the media that reports on it. Um, you know, not always if it bleeds, it leads in politics, right? Um, how do we get people engaged in more thoughtful conversation and more thoughtful discussion? You know, ultimately, we are one of the few countries in the world that still uses a first-past-the-post system. There's a lot of research on different kinds of proportional representation systems that work well. I'm kind of wondering if I would have won that first election. You know, I had 40%. My opponent had, a, if I recall correctly, 33 or 34%. So whose second and third choices would have played through? I still would have won the second and third elections. I, <laughs> I, had, a, I had a clear majority in each of those. But um, so, so, you know, that's the key question. Would I have gotten elected? That is not the key question. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if I were voting... In this, uh, in this referendum here in BC, I'm not sure how I would go. I would really like to think hard, and I don't pretend to be an expert on British Columbia politics, but I'd like to think hard about how that all plays. You know, we actually had, I don't know how many of you know, but we had, I believe, the first proportional representation election with a single transferable vote in modern Canadian history last week in London, Ontario. The municipal government of London, Ontario had chosen to try this out. And what was interesting about it is that there was a very weird debate, and I, again, I don't pretend to really understand London, Ontario politics, but there was a weird debate about a bus rapid transit system. BRTs are easy and cheap and you should support them. <laughs> Just saying. Um, and the sort of more progressive candidates who had really pushed for proportional representation were actually super scared 
that the transferable vote system would get rid of all the progressive yeah. candidates because the anti-BRT vote would coalesce. And some would argue that may have happened in the mayoral election there. It didn't seem to happen in all of the progressive races, but we have data. And I'm very data-driven, and that's something that I would look at. But I'm always willing to experiment and try new things. Okay. Well, was that a good politician answer? It was. Just answering your did question. You, did you answer all? the question? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to something a little bit fun. At least I think it's fun, Olympics. Um, this person wants to know, oh, I lost it. Oh, here it is. Okay, can you describe what factor helped save at the last minute the Calgary 2026 Olympic bid? You talked about that seven hour phone conversation. What else happened behind the scenes? How much should I get into it, Trisha? <laughs> so what had gone wrong? Maybe I can start with what had gone wrong. What had gone wrong was what we, you know, what's that line from the movie? What we have here is a failure to communicate. And what had happened was that people had very much um, not been listening to each other. They thought they were listening to each other, but they really weren't. And nobody sat down and did the math and figured out, oh dear, we actually are not there on a funding deal and we're not going to be able to actually take this thing forward. And eventually what happened was what one of my colleagues at uh, the bid committee calls a pizza meeting, which is you lock everyone in a room and slide pizza under the door and don't let them leave <laughs> until they actually come up with something. There was no pizza and people left. But the concept was there were a lot of chips, a lot of ketchup chips. Um, I was nervous eating at one point. I wasn't even really supposed to be in the room, but I was there trying to move this thing forward. And I looked down and there were three empty chip bags in front of me and I had no memory of eating. <laughs> so I just think other people put them there. Um, but you had to get people in the room together talking about their mutual interests. And uh, uh, I'm trying to decide if I should tell you the funny story. You should tell us the funny story. It's pretty funny. So Monday night, so again, I'm trying to be helpful, but I'm not really a party to these negotiations, but I'm still just trying to be helpful. Um, give ideas, push people along, set deadlines, um, and so on. And so Monday night, I, uh, there was no deal. And so I thought, all right, I don't, I don't think we can salvage this, right? I've got a committee meeting in the morning. Uh, there's nothing to present to the committee, so we're probably done here. So I went home. And my mother lives with me. And I got in at about 7.30 in the evening, and she, I almost gave her a heart attack. Because she was like, what are you doing home so early? You're never home this early. Which caused me to rethink my life a little bit. <laughs> but I jokingly sent a text to my assistant saying, my mother, I almost killed my mother. Um, but what am I going to do for the next five or six or seven hours before I go to bed? And so she was jokingly saying, have you considered television? <laughs> Netflix. Take a bath. And so uh, me being me, I was trying to figure out, can I do all of those things <laughs> at once? So I was standing in my bathroom, gazing at a windowsill, fully clothed. It would have been funnier if I'd been in a robe with a rubber duck. <laughs> in my suit, looking at my windowsill going, could I set my iPad up there and watch it from the bathtub? Then my phone rang. And seven hours later, as I was still standing in my bathroom with my phone in my hand because it was the center of a conference call with many, many parties on it, we got a deal. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And so then ultimately, um, the hard part, that was just a silly story. Some of it might even have been true. Um, but ultimately what happened then was, as I was saying uh, in my remarks, people were really mad, really upset. It was very emotional. People had really personalized it. Um, you know, this person is a jerk. This person screwed us over. How dare you leak that? How dare you leak that? And I said to my counsel, you know, I know it's really hard, but I want you to forget it all. I want you to put it all in a drawer. And I just want you to look at what's on the table in front of you. Is this right for Calgary? Is this a good deal? Is it the right thing for the country? And ultimately, 
enough members of council felt that that was a good deal, that it was the right thing to do, and that the people deserved to vote on it, that we chose to move forward. And that's happening on the 13th? On the 13th. Okay. And I really should be in Calgary right now talking about that plebiscite. I was going to say. <laughs> but I knew what Virginia close. would do to me if I said, hey, listen. <laughs> All right, we have time for one more question. I'm going to do the one that has the most likes. Okay. Um, how can Canadians combat the rising acceptability of violence and hatred against minorities and women? What if communities create silos instead of bridging gaps? I mean, I think that's what we've been talking about all evening, which is we have to hold our politicians to account. We have to ensure that we've got the right policy in place. We have to ensure that we're supporting organizations doing good work. I call them the three Ps policy programs, people. But the most powerful one is that third one, people. Because we have the power. Sometimes we forget we have the power, but we have the power. We have the power to talk to our politicians. We have the power to be kind. We have the power to stand up against hatred, whether it's online or in line at the Tim Hortons. We have the power in our own hands and our own hearts and especially our own voices to not be shouted down. Sometimes there are arenas from which we need to retreat. I used to love social media. I used to love going on Twitter and retweet people's lost dogs and cats and have really interesting policy discussions with people. I don't do it anymore. I use Twitter as a broadcast medium free transit on Saturday for the public library opening, which is true, by the way. But I've retreated from that arena because it's just not worth it anymore. But I don't, want other, I don't want you to think that means I've been silenced, and I don't want anyone else to think they should be silenced. Our job is to use our voices, to use our voices because they're the most powerful tool we have. And whether we are using them in everyday life and everyday interactions and saying, hey, that's unacceptable. Hey, can I help you? Are you okay? What can I do? Those things are incredibly important. And we've got to be able to do that. And we've got to be able to shame our policymakers and politicians and those who aspire to leadership who are doing so with a sense of hatred into being better people. And that's really the job for every single one of us. We cannot imagine that handsome, enlightened politicians with great hair and teeth are going to do it for us. We've got to be able to do it ourselves, and we've got to be able to create the hair and the teeth. Well said. Thank you very much, Mayor Nenshi. That's all the time we have. Um, Thank you all.